the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and the Squamalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. It's wonderful to have a genuine friend named Christy Kissler with me on the podcast today. Christy is the co-founder of Finn River Farm and Cidery and is a mother, farm wife, and community networker in the Chimicum Valley on an organic farm located along a salmon stream on the North Olympic Peninsula of Washington. I've had the pleasure of experiencing Christy's warmth and generosity in circles together, workshops together, and I could feel it in the atmosphere when I visited Finn River on a trip for my son's 16th birthday a couple years ago. I'm super excited to return there on September 17th and 18th, 2022, when I'll be leading wheat weaving workshops and hanging out on the farm during the Jefferson County Farm Tour Days. You can go to my website events listing for tickets. I'll tell you, if I had a farm-based business, which I hope one day to do, I would use Finn River as the model and the template. Now, where Christy and I could probably spend forever talking and visioning and activating dreams together is where land-based spiritual connection and social justice meet, where business ownership and equity and advocacy intersect, where dismantling supremacy culture meets building a worthwhile and beautiful and delicious future. So this is a conversation between two white ladies grappling with what it means to connect to land you don't come from and how we might try to learn how to belong there. So Christy, what identities do you lead with? Oh, I've been thinking about this question. I lead, I think, with a place-based identity um, in my life currently. I feel like I'm a creature of Chimacum, um, here on the Olympic Peninsula. Um, I'm a person of this place. I'm a farm wife, uh, which I think of as being married both to a farm and to a farmer. Um, I'm a mother, teacher, community member. I was um, born and socialized as a, a woman and born and racialized as white, um, but I've been actively examining and kind of reconfiguring my relationship to those identities for a while. So that's a work in progress. I think I identify now as, um, I would say, anti-racist and anti-patriarchy. Um, I identify as earthling, uh, I think, but also as cosmic. I'm pretty interested in the extraterrestrial. And um, I think as like a friend, neighbor, um, community member. That's, mm. that's some of them to start. And wait, Carmen, I know you love poetry. And so actually, when you f first mentioned this question, there was a, a very brief roomy line that came to mind. Do you mind if I share it? Please do. It's the line. You probably know it. It's the line. I am so small. I can barely be seen. How can this great love be inside me? Um, mm. And that line always just makes me feel like, you know what? I'm a small mammal. Mm -hmm. um, You're just a little mammal. I'm just a little furry mammal. <laughs> With a big, with big love, full of yeah. big love. Mm, that's, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, some of it. We shared that in common, our love of poetry. Mm. I'm glad you brought it in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, how long have you been in Chimicum? I don't. I didn't think you grew up there. And and 
and also, did you grow up on a farm? Like, how did you come to the land where you are at Finn River? Yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, um, I'm 51. I've been here now for the majority of my life, but that means about um, 26, 7, 8 years. So um, I was not born on a farm. I was I was raised by a very kind of cosmopolitan um, kind of mover of a mother. So we were in a lot of urban um, centers as a kid. You know, how I got to the farm um, was a sort of developing consciousness in my childhood and into high school of um, feeling unrooted. I used to think I was from another planet because surely, you know, this wasn't this wasn't the right one. <laughs> and so I felt sort of estranged in, in a lot of ways from a lot of the spaces I was in. And then um, I met my current, my husband working in uh, Yosemite National Park, where we were both working for an organization that did um, natural history uh, kind of education with student groups. And he was raised on a farm. He's a, f- a fifth, sixth generation uh, wheat wheat farm family from Eastern Washington. And before that in the Volga Volga River region of, mm-hmm. of Russia. And um, so farming goes way back and way deep for him. And I, I sort of started to see what that looked like for him in an embodied way, this sort of earthiness, this rootedness, you know, his favorite vegetable is a potato. <laughs> yeah, it was a very grounding presence. And I, I just started to feel drawn to it. And together we kind of shaped our, um, you know, desire and commitment to, to do a life of agriculture. Mm. Wow. That's so wonderful that you, um, you connected with somebody who had the medicine that mm-hmm. you've been hoping for for a long time. And potato. I, I mean, I love that. <laughs> I'm a big potato person too. Is it actually a vegetable? Maybe it's not a I vegetable. Tuber, whatever it's it is. It's a tuber. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the <laughs> Volga River. So mm-hmm. is he kind of like Bessarabian or something like that? Like some of those, it's, is he actually Russian or is um, there? No, they are the Germans that Catherine the Great brought up to that area actually to farm wheat and then changed her mind or the next ruler changed their mind and then they were sort of sent off. And I want to say that there's a whole community of them in Eastern Washington and there is a name for that kind of ethnic um, yes. group. Yes. So my, my um, mother's father's side are uh, Germans in Russia called Bessarabians. Oh, came from the Wittenberg area and yes, colonized um, what would actually now be Moldova, uh, but exactly that brought by the Russian aristocracy, colonized for about a hundred years. And actually this is, what's the test for how long does it take to talk about Nazis? Um, Anyway, did a lot of medical um, data gathering and testing on them to see if Germans who hadn't lived in Germany for a hundred years were still ethnically German. Oh, brother. Um, yeah, isn't that wild? And then when they moved to Canada, they still identified as German, even though they'd been in the Moldova region uh, farming for, you know, a hundred years, multiple generations. So isn't that so interesting that... Um, 
Yeah, it is. And you know, it's, it, what's also interesting is that I tell the story of Keith's lineage quite a bit, um, this sort of connection to, you know, they brought wheat over and sewed in their coats and, and yes. migrated across the country and settled in the Dakotas and then in Washington. But I, I didn't really have a sense of my own uh, lineage past really my mother until the pandemic when a, um, oh, I don't know, second cousin something something removed reached out to me and she said, I'm tracing all the great-great-granddaughters of our shared uh, Jewish-Lithuanian ancestor, Batya, and Ooh. I was on her list. And so oh now so now I have a great-great-grandmother uh, to name, um, this, this Batya. And so I'm, I'm just sort of beginning actually trying to discern. So, you know, when I think about identities, actually, I am trying to sort of I'd love to name my my sort of six, five or six maternal um, ancestors of such a thing. You know that that's sort of a, a gift in in the in this world in terms of how people have been displaced um, from their ancestry. But that felt like a real gift to have um, a sense of of some connection to Lithuania. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. I'm excited for you. How Mm -hmm. wonderful. I like, God bless the people who reach out to strangers and say, I've done all this emotional labor for you. Do you care? It's like, oh my gosh. People on the internet, when they, when they do that, I'm just so impressed. So, okay. So you have these identities and they're, they're here, you know, in what, what you would call the Pacific Northwest, I guess it, it's still under the umbrella. Basically, is white. You're a white settler, mm-hmm. and though Keith has been there for five or six generations, that that probably brings with it a fair bit of tension. I would think if you're mm-hmm. anti-racist, and so mm-hmm. how do you grapple with being white farmers on indigenous lands? Like, how do you incorporate that into your work if you're anti-racist, anti-patriarchal, if you're mm-hmm. if you're working towards incorporating justice? Yeah, well, it's such a relief, really, in, in some ways, just to have you ask ask the question out front because I do think that's the um. It's sort of the great the great hurdle, and it's the great complexity, really, of of um, sort of occupying. I think the identity I do, or the identities I do. So yeah, I can respond to that a, f- a few ways. I guess first I'll say back to the the sort of initial impulse to farm um, came from a sense that the relationship that I was sort of instructed to have with nature was that it was this kind of external force that you visited on weekends or when you went hiking. And uh, otherwise you had your sort of real life and, and you kind of moved back and forth in or out of nature, depending on your schedule or your, you know, <laughs> your, your opportunity. And in our early twenties, both Keith and I started to see that that was somehow unnatural. It certainly didn't feel correct in our bodies. And it felt like it wasn't correct at scale because of the way this, this society that we inhabit was sort of disregarding um, what, what it was sort of naming as nature. Um, and so reconciling that for us was this uh, relationship to food and the sense that food actually is nature. You know, it has been sort of categorized as this sort of other thing you buy it in the store and so on, but it is actually like plant matter and animals and soil and water and minerals and light. And so we thought, wow, you know, what if we pursued a life as farmers with the sort of intention of, of having that be our pathway to reconnection with nature, knowing that agriculture, you know, had, you know, in some ways was the great veering off from our sense of wild sort of nomadic um, kind of reciprocal 
mm-hmm. in a wilder connection to natural spaces. So, so knowing and agriculture was sort of the maybe it was a harbinger of colonization in so many ways. Is it well, cr- and, cr- and yeah. the surplus? Like, sure, like the hoarding of surplus. Yes, and things like that. yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so we came to agriculture um, with this sort of naive but earnest notion of we're going to use farming as our portal to reconnection with the land. We're going to help remind ourselves and those we f- we feed that food is nature. And that this, I wouldn't have used the word reciprocal at, at the time, probably not as aggressively as I, as, mm-hmm. as, as passionately as I do now until, you know, we've all read Braiding Sweetgrass and mm-hmm. um, Robin Wall Kimmer is sort of really reinforcing that idea of reciprocity in a way that's sort of finally set, settling in to my bones. But um, yeah, that we would use food as this portal of reconnection and so arrived full of like, you know, ideals and pretty soon, you know, started feeling how um, big a, a um, task it is to become rooted in a new place. Uh, you really can't just plop down and belong. And I started to just sort of peel, or, you know, just really dig into what would belonging feel like here? And I realized pretty quickly, I, I have to understand who's, you know, what happened here? You know, and you, you start asking that question and um, in, especially in the Pacific Northwest, you don't go too far back before you bump into um, colonization and um, the sort of um, brutality and barbarism that was the sort of invasion of this Couple landscape. Yeah, not far back. So mm-hmm. um, now what's really interesting about Chimicum and at the risk of getting like too historical nerdy here in this conversation, mm-hmm. it's a pretty complicated um, spot in on the Olympic Peninsula. There are many um, sort of uh, tribal nations and communities and family groups that have moved through the Olympic Peninsula as homelands, as trading grounds, as migration paths. And um, Chimicum, the community I'm in, was named after the Chimicum people. But if you if you looked at the Wikipedia entry, you know, even five years ago, even a year ago, maybe it would say, well, the Chimicum were all. Um, I don't even know what verb it was, something terrible, you know, lost, mm-hmm. destroyed, um, basically that this is no longer a functional group of people. So you you had to sort of start going outward. Well, who's our neighboring tribes? It's the Sklalem. We have the Jamestown Sklalem nearby, the Port Gamble Sklalem. Um, there's also connection in this land to the Snohomish because as, as cultures were displaced, they were moving, you know, they were forced mm-hmm. to sort of move into new spaces. So I started to you know, jump ahead, I started researching, you know, where are we? What happened here? Whose land is this? And I'll just move ahead to say that's been a 20-year process. And it felt like um, becoming informed was sort of a first step and that the next step was going to be becoming, um, you know, developing actual relationships with people. And that takes time and trust building. And the outcome, or at least in this moment, where where it's at is um, the, the Chimicum people are, are not gone. They're very much here. And the families that have been here um, are, are, are emerging right now with a collective voice to say, we're here. They're, that's literally the message. And some local photographers just did a portrait um, project to catalog, you know, to kind of capture their, or, you know, to yeah, catalog their photos, take their photos and make an exhibition. And that exhibition is going to be at Finn River um, our farm on Labor Day weekend. And uh, mm-hmm. members of those families are going to be here. We've been in discussion with them for months about how can our farm be um, a sort of haven for them and a place of um, kind of um, comfort and support as they're emerging, as they're reclaiming their story. 
um, as they're making themselves visible. So now I'm really just trying to uh, put myself in the service of that effort um, and am learning a lot as that happens, you know, because I'm hearing stories and I'm, I'm understanding more about the complexities and um, intertribal complexities and, and colonizer complexities. And um, yeah, so I could go on, but I, does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Part of it? Yeah. Well, especially the part that it, it literally takes decades, you know, yeah. like the, it's, it's a lifelong um, question of grappling yep. of how, how do we be here and how do we, how, what is reciprocity? And like you said, you can't just plop yourself down and belong somewhere. Um, that's different f- from residing there. And, and, and yeah, and to deepen it, because being in conversation with you, I feel like is, a, is an invitation to sort of deepen into sort of a, those somatic spaces. I would say that the reckoning that you asked about, like, how do I reckon with being uh, in a white body here, in a colonizer lineage here, I, I reckon with it through grief. I reckon with it through ambiguity. I reckon with it through um, confusion. I reckon with it through um, relationship. I, you know, there's not a tidy answer for that. I think it is a commitment to sort of bear the grief of, of what's happened here and to figure out how to align with any kind of repair or healing that might be possible. And, and, and in that there is some resolution, but I'm certainly not expecting a sort of comfortable outcome. And Mm -hmm. so I guess I feel like I'm continuing to live with that um, discomfort, but trying to do so kind of um, with a sense of possibility for what's going forward, because also I, you know, I'm learning so much about the disassociation that uh, my, the sort of dominant culture has created for me with my body, with my community, with my landscape. And so there's this, Um, pathway to sort of learning and recovering um, a whole lot of wisdom, you know, indigenous wisdom that's, um, you know, has been here, is still here, and wants to be, I think, um, really the guiding light out of the I'm not sure, probably shouldn't swear on the podcast, but out of the the shit show that we're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm Well, what you're describing is um, the word that's coming to me is hospitality mm. and that, uh, you know, here here we are as uninvited guests yep. and now you are a landholder. Mm-hmm. And so how can we create a, a, an atmosphere of warm hospitality in order to create conditions where reciprocity may exist at some point mm-hmm. and it may or not be, it may or may not be uh, returned. But um, I notice having visited Finn River once that like hospitality is a really, um, it, it just permeates everything. It's a very welcoming place. Mm-hmm. And a big part of Finn River um, of the experience there is dining. And so how has your thought about food evolved? Like you kind of were telling, mm-hmm. you know, saying you were a bit naive and it was like, mm-hmm. you're being a bit cheeky and describing like, we're going to, you know, food is nature. So, you know, clearly it's important to you, but, but like the dining, the, the um, customer service, the atmosphere that you've created, it, it, it really is a, like hospitality forward kind of place. So why is that so important to you? Like, don't you have enough work to do just like growing grain and making cider? Like, mm. what, what about this restaurant experience? 
Yeah, thank you for that question because it speaks to really the the purpose. I, I don't think the purpose for us ever was just put food in people's mouths or just put beverages in their you know down their gullet. It was always. Oh, well, actually, I, this is just an opportunity to share our mission. So it's, the Finn River mission is um, celebrate the beauty and bounty of the earth, uh, reconnect people to the land that sustains us and grow community. And we drafted that, you know, with, with quite a bit of thought and soul and sort of, you know, it's been a touchstone, you know, throughout the, the decades we've been building this um, kind of experience, and this enterprise. But I would say the last bit, grow community has been the one that continues to sort of reveal its depths and to reveal mm-hmm. its, its, its challenges and its possibilities. Because I, that I sense I, that for sure was a fairly glib statement, you know, grow community. Everybody's welcome. Come on, let's eat and drink together. Um, and the more, the longer time I've spent here, the more I've, I felt into the um, kind of off the opening up of the heart and the sort of, offering up of, of, sort of time and presence that's required to make a community possible. So Finn River's intended to be a space where, where really that invitation is open, that work happens. Um, we create, you know, lots and lots of sort of cultural content that, that will bring, you know, reach, I think, all different sectors of the community and really the signature piece of the, the Finn River facilities, if you will, is this old... Um, dairy feeding trough. It's like 75 foot long concrete trough. I don't know if you saw it when you came, but it was where the cows would sort of walk up and put their head down and eat the silage or the hay or whatever it was. And rather than knocking that over and putting in tables, we just um, ran table down the middle of the feeding trough. So you literally sit on it uh, when you come and you're sort of at this human feeding trough. And the idea was this is a 70 foot, 75 foot long table let's put people next to each other. Let's create a physical space that actually is a metaphor for, you know, we're all here together sort of feeding off the same surface of the same planet. Um, we're all eating the same elements. We're in this relationship all together. And I think that sense of kinship that you feel when you're eating together um, is something we wanted to sort of reinforce and, 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 nur- and nourish, you know, and so food, Food is nourishment, food is kinship, food is community, food is celebration. We really try and um, create opportunities for all of that to happen. And then, of course, the food, back to the sort of origin story, reminding people, you know, when you put this in your mouth, you're, you're eating that, you're eating, you know, you're eating the earth, you're eating the light, you're eating the soil, you're eating the, the sweat off the hands of the farmers, you're eating <laughs> the life energy that they, that they brought to it, that all this sort of... Um, elements of the land bring to it. So um, dining is, yeah, it's a fundamental kind of community building act. And we we, we discover new things about how to do that um, in ways that will continue to be sort of more inclusive and more accessible and more, um, more nourishing. It's, it's been fits and starts of sort of understanding mm. and learning. And we also are trying to operate as a business. And so that, that bottom line of, of enterprise is sort of a um, kind of constant uh, mm-hmm. wrestling match. We, we became a certified B corporation, which is mm. um, companies that make a commitment to 
what they referred to as the triple bottom line of people, place, and profit. And you, you, you put this in your operating agreement, you go through a very rigorous accreditation, and you essentially write into your incorporation papers, we are not beholden only to the bottom line. We will not behave in ways that are always profitable. We will act as if people and place matter. Mm. Um, and, and so that continues to sort of guide how we think about food and hospitality. Now, and to mm. hospitality, Carmen, I, I feel like I'm just at the beginning of a study of what does radical hospitality look like? Mm. Um, how do we reduce the transactional and up the transformational? And you know, the human beings involved here day to day are the ones that make that transformation happen. And what it means to be a human being at work right now is complicated and somewhat sort of beleaguered after the pandemic. So Mm -hmm. we're also trying to recover from that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a, sorry, am I interrupting you? I, I have, how is this for you as a person who is as much cosmic or has been (laughs) rootless and oriented off planet for a lot of your life, how do you bridge to the earth Mm -hmm. and how have you found meaning, perhaps spiritual um, homecoming Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by being a, a, a farm wife? Yeah, such a, such a rich question. You know, the, the, the quest continues. I, it does deepen, you know, year to year, it does deepen. And it deepens as you, as I become more familiar with the patterns of this landscape, you know, the migrations of the swans and the the sort of flowering of the this and the ripening of the that and the way the light changes. So there's this thing that's happening to my body as it gets synced up to the um, seasonality of this place. You know, I should mention that Keith and I were, my husband and I were very, profoundly informed by the work of Wendell Berry in our early twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and he's not the, you know, in some ways, Wendell Berry's echoing something that I, I think of as very indigenous, which is this be of a place. Mm-hmm. Um, you, 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 you can't be in, you know, your, your deepening of relationship to something happens through uh, commitment and time and presence. And so we took his um, sort of uh, urging and exhortation, like, commit to a place very, very seriously. Everyone who knows me knows it's hard to get me out of Chimicum. I have like a three mile loop that I do, you know, day in and day out uh, in this place. And so um, I'm asking the same question you are. What does it take to belong here? Staying here feels like one answer. (laughs) Being in sensory relationship to the place, um, committing to getting to know my neighbors and continuing to expand who, who, who I think of as my neighbors, you know, outside of whatever the kind of grooves are that you form naturally. Um, and um, now that I'm becoming more of a student of reciprocity, um, trying to let go of um, sort of preconceived notions about what that means and sort of have more of a beginner's kind of like every day, a little bit of a beginner's um, attitude to belonging because it's, um, feels like I can't, there's like quite a bit of baggage, you know, that came in. I'm still, I'm still, I'm still tossing baggage. But um, Carmen, you know, the other night I'm, I'm going through menopause, everybody. And so I have wake up in the night quite a few times, 
a friend told me to call them power surges instead of hot flashes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I am trying to make a point of saying the word menopause out loud since it's yeah, one, of these, sure. one of these hidden um, phenomena that's pretty significant. Um, anyway, I wrote this thing the other night right ab- uh, about this. Can I? May I read it to you? Please do. Um, I think it answers this question. This is everybody. This is in um, scribble, so it's it's not been edited or reformed. But um, this is what occurred to me in the middle of the night. What will it take to belong here truly to a land I was not born to, nor my parents or theirs or their ancestors? Once I have learned the timing of the swans, the names of the ferns. Um, once I have tasted every wild berry, been covered by nettle stings, immersed myself in the sea, wrapped in kelp. What if I smear, smeared semiahu muck all over my body? That's the soil type of this valley. Mm. Uh, what if I packed it in my mouth? What if I ate only from this ground, drank only snowmelt and creek run from here? What if my feet never left this land again? What if the birds knew me by name and my neighbors all waved? Is there any hope to belong here in this place? Will I always feel extraterrestrial, invader, delivered by meteor? Am I familiar here? Am I family? Do I know the words for home? Do I know the way here? Am I lost or foundering? Could I find my way through the forest by the direction of the wind and the smell of the salt? Is it morbid to say, I feel like I'll only fully belong when I am buried here, when I have given all of myself back? Yeah. Oh, Christy. Oh. That was beautiful. Carmen. Thank you. Oh, I knew you I thought are, you would like it. Of course I love it. Oh. You articulate well, I only feel I belong here when I'm back in the ground. That's yeah. like uh yes, you hmm. have captured the essence of feeling rootless hmm. and displaced and invader and mm-hmm. oh, that was gorgeous. Oh, thank you for hearing me. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, I mean I I didn't, you know, I woke up actually, it was on the pillow next to me and I was feeling grateful for my midnight power surge. Yes. So you said that one of the ways you grapple is through grief Mm. and it sounds like poetry. Writing poetry is one of the ways as well. What are are some of the other ways you cope Mm. with grief? And also I'm curious with rage, does Christy Kistler get enraged? And if so, how does it come out? Oh, well, I do now, thanks to menopause. So just to say that word again. Um, yeah, I guess let's start with grief. You know, the real gift of grief work for me came from Joanna Macy in my 20s, the Buddhist sort of scholar activist who, who you know, introduced me to despair work. And, and I think the key sort of treasure of that encounter for me with her work was, well, I used to experience, you know, I, I sobbed my way through through college because I was studying sort of environmental <laughs> issues and, and starting to, you know, get, gain a social justice consciousness. And I, and, and uh, I, so I would be out sort of sobbing quite frequently and people would sort of pat me on the back and say, um, it'll be okay. Well, I did not, I was not comforted by that. I, I felt <laughs> like it was sort of missing the point. Um, and so when I got the f- copy of world is lover world is self, and she said, look, despair despair work is actually the um the excavation of your heart to make more room for compassion Mm. I was like okay that's a way to convert what I feel is despair into um participation in 
you know, embodying compassion or participation in the work of compassion, I guess the, the, um, yeah, the embodiment of compassion. So, I mean, this is, that's a lofty aspiration, you know, I, I often just sort of get despairing. Um, but I, I, I hear her in my mm-hmm. mind and I, I, I visualize this excavation happening and I think, okay, now there's more room to love. Mm-hmm. Um, that hurts. Let me, mm-hmm. let me, let me dig, let me dig out more, more room, uh, more room to love. I mean, this is making me sound like I'm a nicer person than I am. I'm not, I don't, I don't really, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's just, I hope, you know, I am just going to spend my whole life trying to figure out how to be human. I think to the rage part, there's been a lot more of that the last few years, whether it's hormonal or just the um, volume of information that's coming our way, the, the, the level of exposure that's at work right now in terms of the, the harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so rage, maybe more outrage um, is what comes up. And I, you know, I probably would have to talk to you about how to really manage that <laughs> in a healthy way. Um, oh, well, not the healthy part, but yes, talk, yeah. to, me about, talk to me about rage. Outra- and, yeah. you know, we, we don't, um, you know, the, the last several episodes of the podcast, we've talked about menopause a fair bit. And oh, good. I do think that there's a, there's just like a, a there's a time, right? There's a time and place for everything. And um, how wonderful that our biology uh, tells us when it's time to become really like outwardly outraged and and to yeah. um, kind of be willing to risk a lot for our holy outrage. That's right. And you know, forgive me, you'll appreciate this because you're a word person, but I think of myself now as an agitator with the with ag in there, you know, a farm <laughs> agitator. I'm an agitator. <laughs> And I have become, uh, I would say, and I'm guessing anyone who I work with who happens to listen to this will nod their head. I think I've become more disruptive, um, it, you know, in in meetings, not not to sort of, uh, not for the sake of being disruptive, but for the sake of sort of cha- asking questions and challenging, um, you know, the status quo and so on and so on. So I, you know, I'm, I and I'm, I get, I have the gift of being. Um, in proximity to a lot of uh, younger, I would say more radical thinkers. And so I have a chance to sort of echolocate off uh, what they're bringing forward, what they're learning, the new language. Um, and I would also say outrage is manifested for me right now as um, a, a new set of boundaries. Um, what's that amazing Prentice Hemphill line? Uh, oh, my boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and myself at the same time. Yes, that is cha- mm-hmm. that that notion is changing the terms of some of my relationships. Mm. And I think that's uh, outrage is sort of an indicator mm. that I, that I then sort of pay attention. I tend attend to and go, Oh, is this changing the terms of this relationship? If I find myself consistently outraged by uh, this or that dynamic or this or that situation or setting or. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm so pleased to know you at this time in your mm-hmm. life, though I think if we'd known each other 10 or 20 years ago, we would have uh, bounced off each other really, really well mm-hmm. because I too had the, like, it, it's, it, it is nice to be able to look back and be like, oh, that was a little altruistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like, oh, I didn't know as much as I thought I did. Um, and then to come to a place where it feels really comfortable to, to not know everything mm-hmm. and to be learning. And like you said, be learning from younger people and to be able to adopt new language and, and, um, 
and and at the same time be able to spend the privilege of a, a wiser, older self <laughs> on oh. things that actually really matter and hopefully are going to have impact. So thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for making me cry. That's just, it's so sweet. It's so sweet. I, it feels so good to cry to your words, Christy. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, I'm moved, moved by your responsiveness. And it's always a joy to talk to you, Carmen. Thank you for the thoughtful questions and the fruitful conversation. Appreciate it. And looking forward to seeing you. Looking too forward long. to seeing you too. It, it, it takes a very exceptional individual to get me out of my three mile loop. I understand that. <laughs> and then to like cross the sea cross a border into America, I would only do it for people that are truly dear to me. So I'm really looking forward to um, hanging out and uh, doing some ritual craft at Finn River in September. Amazing. Thank you. We, I, feel, I feel the honor and I feel the significance of the movement. So thank you. <laughs> Can't wait to see you. I know you want to read that poem again. So Christy has generously supplied a draft which you'll find in the show notes at numinouspodcast.com. I cannot wait to enjoy the harvest home season with Christy and the Finn River fam. As I said, you can purchase tickets online. It's the same workshop each day. So just pick your day and let's make it a date. I'll see you there. And if you come, post it on Instagram. Tag me on Instagram. Let's, I'm going to be on the ferry and I, you know, I'm just, I'm very excited. So let us know when you're traveling there and let me know who I'm going to be hanging out with. It'll be very exciting to see you. Listener shout out today. I can't help but notice that my listens in Ukraine are growing lately. And I don't know how that's happening, but I want you to know that I'm, I see you and I'm thinking about you. A lot of us over here on the west coast of Canada are still thinking about you and talking about you. I'm holding vigil for you all. So it means a lot that you're listening and I hope you can feel my heart reaching for your heart through the airwaves. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Finally, The Spirited Kitchen, my forthcoming cookbook, October 31st, available in stores, is now available for pre-order. And I highly recommend you purchase it now. Okay, for many reasons, but namely because it helps my publisher determine the size of the print run. And I would hate to run out at the holiday gift giving season because suddenly there's like a big rush on October 31st and then there's not enough time for them to get new copies into stores. So it like helps them gauge and plan ahead. So if you can, it'd be really good. It'd be so good if you would order it now. And you can go to my website and you'll see a bunch of the cookbook tab a bunch of retailers you can purchase it from, and then you can just come back and submit your receipt. You just come back to my website, go to the cookbook page, and when you submit your receipt, you'll instantly get a download bonus. One of them is like an extended final chapter with over 300 magical correspondences, um, different ingredients, animals, deities, elements, medicines, plants, all that stuff, um, and what their spiritual significance is. So, so if you can, it'd be so good if you could order it now and just go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.